How's that? There we go. We just had a little water accident over there by where I sat. The key to our future is something that's very common in everyday life for, for people around the world, wherever they may live, male, female, um, powerful, rich people, to those that are in, in poverty, businessmen, explorers, kings, politicians. Some of the elements that go into this key are confidence, trust, hope, belief. Some place these elements into money or in themselves or in their friends, in military power, in knowledge, in even illegal activities. The item I'm talking about is faith. Key to our future. Faith in Jesus Christ. In what he says and who he is. And following through as best we can with his instructions. In Deuteronomy 32.20, there's a negative statement made about mankind and their relationship to God. And he said, I will hide my face from them. I will see what their end shall be, for they are a very forward generation, children in whom is no faith. And we are, seem to be heading down that road with every passing year that there's less and less faith. And more and more people, and I say faith, I mean faith in Jesus, Christian faith, and walking that walk. The definition of faith, and I'm not going to use the one in Hebrews that we're very familiar with, but rather, I'd like to go to Matthew 6.30, wherein if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is cast into the oven, shall not he much be much more clothe you, O ye of little faith. The word faith here is Strong's 3640 number, meaning incredulous or lacking confidence. It's in the negative part of faith, a little having a little faith. The next scripture I want to go to, which also helps define faith, is in Matthew 8.26. And he said to them, why are you fearful, O you, you of little faith? Then he arose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. Here he was crossing the sea with his disciples. And they woke up and they were scared because of the wind and they thought they might be capsized. And, and here again, the, uh, the, the word in Strong's numbers is 6119, meaning timid, faithless, or fearing. So in the first two definitions, we, we see lacking confidence, being faithless and fearful and timid and incredulous. And in the third verse I want to look at is in Matthew 9.29. Then touched he their eyes, saying, according to your faith, be it unto you. And that's in the Greek, in that Strong's number 4104. That's the number that is usually used where faith is used throughout most of the New Testament. It's 4102. And that definition is credence, assurance, and belief. So through all of this, we have trust, confidence, being fearless, having assurance, having belief, and putting credence into what we've learned. All important parts 
of faith. And it's so important because in Hebrews 11.6, it tells us, but without faith it is impossible to please him. For he that comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. And here we see some instruction as to our activities. Diligence. Not just casual or occasional, but diligence. An effort. We're going to see a little later where he says, strive for in, actually it's the very next scripture, <laughs> Jude 1.3, he says to us, Behold, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith that was once delivered to the saints. Strong's number is 1864, meaning contend and struggle for. So we must strive for faith, struggle for faith, and we do this through the things that we suffer in our life. Sometimes we can't see it. Sometimes we may go through a situation that we look to be really negative. And I remember asking for, well, why did this happen to me? And never really getting an answer. And wondering, what was I supposed to learn from this? Because I cognizantly didn't learn it. I was not aware of whatever it was I was to learn, if I was to learn anything. But maybe it would became part of my character, and I'm not aware of it. But maybe it was for helping somebody else. So sometimes it's a little nebulous as to what was, was accomplished. But the basis for attaining this is found in Galatians 5.22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, Long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, and faith. Faith is a fruit of the Spirit of God. We apply the Spirit of God. We learn what the Spirit of God does for us, how it works for us, and we, he helps us to develop that faith as a fruit. And we get a little bit more visibility on it in 1 Corinthians 12, uh, 4 through 9. Now, these are the diversities of gifts, but the same spirit. This is interesting because here he's talking about gifts. And there are diff differences of administration, but the same Lord. And there are differences of operations, but it is the same God which works all in all. But the manifestation of the spirit is given to every man to profit with all. For to one is given by the spirit the word of wisdom. To another, the word of knowledge, by the same Spirit. To another, faith, by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing, by the same Spirit. So it appears from the last two scriptures that you do get a base level of, the, of faith from the Holy Spirit. But there seems to be a higher level of this faith that can be given to certain people for certain causes. Because in this list of gifts, he talks about healing by the same and we all don't have the gift of healing people, do we? What is the prerequisite to receive the gift? We find the prerequisite in Acts 2.38. Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remissions of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. 
all very important aspects of faith. How to achieve faith, how to receive faith, what to do with faith, what we can expect from him, where we should have our place, our hopes, our trust, our beliefs. Sometimes that faith can be tested. Sometimes we have things happen to us that we don't think should happen to us. One of these we may find in the letters to the seven churches back in Revelation. These two churches have no faults identified with either one of them. One common factor between them is that they both have those that are of the synagogue of Satan that say they are Jews but are not. That's common between these two churches. But in Philadelphia church in Revelation 3 verse 10, he says, because you have kept the word of my patience, I also will keep you from the hour of temptation, which shall come upon all the world to try them that dwell upon the earth. Now he doesn't, he says he's going to keep them from the hour of temptation and whether that includes death at the hands of those that are of the Antichrist or not, I'm not so sure. But certainly the hour of temptation being kept from that is significant. In Smyrna, which also has no fault identified against it, in Revelation 2, verses 8 through 10, and unto the angel of the church in Smyrna write, these things saith the first and the last, which was dead and is alive. I know your works and tribulation. Here they were already in tribulation and poverty, but you are rich. I know the blasphemy of them that say they are Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. Fear none of those things which you shall suffer. They're going to suffer, and they already have suffered. They have suffered in tribulation and poverty already. And he says, fear not. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison, and you shall be tried, and you shall have tribulation ten days. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give you a crown of life. So what is the difference between Philadelphia and Smyrna? Neither one of them have a fault identified against them. Revelation in, in Philadelphia, they're kept from the temptation. And in Smyrna, they're going to be tested and some of them are going to give their life. What's the difference? Something to think about. One difference, possibly, could be his purpose. It doesn't have anything to do with them internally, their faith, but rather the situation they're in and what they're going to Plan, the part of the plan that the, he has for them. I think it's important to understand that the things that happen to us that we view as being negative might not be negative at all. And we sometimes react to negative things in a negative way. And certainly the examples of what the Apostle Paul suffered illustrates that. He was always positive, always knowing that God was in charge. So it's important to strive for faith, work at building it, developing it, experiencing it. 
so his purposes can be fulfilled. And regardless of the negativity. In 2 Corinthians 5, 5 through 9, we find some statements about confidence. Now he that has wrought us for the self-same thing as God, who also has given unto us the earnest of the Spirit. Therefore, we are always confident, knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and willing, rather to be absent from the body and be present with the Lord. Wherefore, we labor that, whether present or absent, we may be accepted of him. I love that scripture. It, it, it just exudes the confidence, the, the foresight, the, the trust, the focus that he had, walking by faith and not by sight, not regarding the negativity that he may experience personally. And we labor to be accepted of him. Part of what we face with the negativity are risks. They come from many places. We don't often know where they're going to come from. They come in surprises. And they can, at the very instant, at the time when we experience them, put a momentary fear into our very hearts and minds. One of those experiences may be that if you're a, if you're a pilot and you, you lose engine power, and there you are, and one of the questions I always had for various different instructors were, how do I know I'm going to respond right? How do I know I'm not going to freeze up? How am I going to know that even though I'm going through this training, I'm going to experience, I'm going to react in the correct way. And to a person, to a man, they all said the same thing. If you do the training, if you follow the instruction, if you apply it, you may have an instantaneous emotional response, and that'll fade quickly, and you will go automatically right into your training. I found that to be true. I found that to be very true. But those risks are not always the same because if you're one of the things you're supposed to do and they train you to do this is always identify a place to land. You're flying along in case if you lost the engine power right now, where would I land? During the day, that's a real easy thing to do. But at night, it's almost impossible, especially if there's no moon. Very difficult unless you're by a lighted four lane four lane highway. Risks in Matthew seven, fifteen through twenty. Because the risks that we have may come upon us suddenly, or they may come upon us gradually and evolve over time, and we see them developing, and we see them happening, and we see the foundation being put in place. And it's just a matter of time before this risk becomes a reality and it will be 
unavoidable. In Matthew 7, 15 through 20, Beware of false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You shall know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes or thorns or figs of, figs of thistles? Even so, every good tree brings forth good fruit, but a corrupt tree brings forth evil fruit. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Every tree that brings, forth, that brings not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. Wherefore, by their fruits you shall know them. Continuing, let's continue in verses 21 through 24. Not everyone that says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that does the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? And in your name we have cast out devils? And in your name have done many wonderful works? And he will say to them, I profess unto them, I will profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you that work iniquity. It's interesting, he doesn't say that they didn't do the works. On the other hand, it could be false profession, claiming to do them. In verse 24, Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man which built his house upon a rock. One of the earliest indicators that we have relative to end-time events the start of the final seven years. And there's a lot of speculation that goes on out there by people, and they make various claims. And if they point out that it's not being sowed in concrete, and they're not saying, this is the way it has to be, and this is what's going to happen, I know it from up on high. If they're qualifying it as some speculation, eh, Maybe it's not too bad. But it's better to know exactly and specifically the very earliest point of when the final seven years starts. And he tells us that. He tells us that. In Daniel 9:27, the 70th week of, this, of the prophecy. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. One week is seven years. And for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offerings. He'll stop the... I'm, gonna, I'm reading this from the ESV. I do this all the time. I, I start in the King James and I cross-check scriptures from other books and then I forget to take the computer back. I'm in the ESV now, not in the King James. Then on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. And we can, we can find from other scriptures that... It is decreed that the desolation is going to be poured out. And that's in Isaiah, if I remember correctly. And when he makes this strong covenant, it'll be with many. It's not going to be something that's done under the, under the covers and under the blankets. It should be visible. But if we happen to miss that, there's the works of the two witnesses. And if we happen to miss that, 
then we have the start of the last three and a half years when the military power will march into Jerusalem. In Revelation 6, verses 1 and 2, and now, and this is a description of this man. Jesus, when he returns, is on a white horse. And he's returning as the King of kings and Lord of lords. In Revelation 6, we see the imposter riding on a white horse. Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come! And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. So he has a bow. That's military. But he doesn't have any arrows. What does that mean? He has a bow, but no arrows. It's a trick question. If we go to Strong's number, 5115 for the word bow. The definition is apparently the simplest form of fabric. It's not a military bow at all. It's a ribbon bow, a bow tie. Symbolically, some sources say that that illustrates binding and tying together. Like it says back in Daniel 9.27, many, you make a strong covenant with many for one week. Well, this bow perhaps represents that binding together. And the other part of it is, it says that, and a rider had a bow, past tense, it, that is seen in the image. And then it says, and a crown was given to him in the image. He didn't already have the crown. I've read this for years and presumptuously I was assuming he already had the crown. What could that possibly mean? He gets the crown after he made the strong covenant with many, bound them together and they made him and gave him the crown and gave him that power and authority. Sequence of events. One possibility. But what really surprised me was bow was not a military bow. It's the simplest form of fabric. For years, I never looked that word up, and I thought it was always a military bow. We're going to have scoffers at the end time in Second Peter chapter 3, verses 3 and 4. Know this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning. And we can go through and we can research some of the great men who have made derogatory comments. When I say great men, great inventors, those have invented things like the light bulb and phonograph, airplanes and so on. You know, great inventors and they have this... Um, attitude of not believing in the faith of Jesus Christ. First Timothy 4 verse 1, now the Spirit expressly says that in the latter time some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. That's where you have to be careful in speculation. 
and how far speculation goes. What is being derived from the speculation? How extensive it goes out and how many ramifications they, they develop from it. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 16 through 18, he says, But avoid irreverent babbling, for lead people into more and more ungodliness. And their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenicus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened, and they are upsetting the faith of some. And Paul goes on to compare that back to those at the time of Moses who also opposed the truth. We're saved by faith through Jesus Christ. But the hour comes and now is when the true worshiper shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeks, to, seeks such to worship him. We have no prophets today. And we seek to know the truth and to worship God in spirit and in truth. And part of the lack of that truth is described to us all the way back in Jeremiah 10, verses 3 through 5. Jeremiah 10, 3 through 5. He actually talks about something. Get there. For the customs of the people are vain. For one cuts a tree out of the forest the work of the hands of the workmen with the axe. They deck it with silver and gold. They face, fasten it with nails and with hammers that it move not. What does that sound like to you? The customs of the people are vain. We must worship him in spirit and in truth. And it's interesting because there was an article, I think it was put out by Lifeway. I think it was out just this week where they actually did some uh, surveying and they're finding that there is a movement underway within Christianity to stop keeping Christmas. And they point to the activities of the atheist and the agnostic who also keep this quote Christian holiday. But they readily admit that the origins of it are in paganism. In fact, in 262 AD, Aurelian, who was the ruler in Rome, wanted to set up a universal, universal universalism in religion. In other words, he wanted to, everybody to worship the same and probably so he could control them. He worshipped the god Sol Invictus, and believed that Sol Invictus made him invincible because every battle he fought, he always won. And so he built a temple to them, 
And on December 25th of the year, he declared it as the birthday of Sol Invictus. 1,700 years later or more, we are still celebrating that, quote, birthday. Some attributing that to Jesus. John 4.23 says, But the hour is coming and now is that true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeks such to worship him. In 1 Corinthians, no, let's go to Ephesians 2.8. For by grace you are saved through faith, and that not of yourself is the gift of God. And in 1 Corinthians 2.16, for who has known the mind of Christ that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. The challenge isn't developing the mind of Christ. It's utilizing the mind of Christ through the instructions that we have been given. Engage it. Energize it. Philippians 1.27 only let your conversation be as is becomes the gospel of Christ. That whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs. That you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Striving together with one mind, allowing our minds to develop together uniformly for the will of God. Some of the steps to do that, we ask for faith and prayer. We prove what we believe. We study the word. Study to see if we are incorrect and make corrections. Practice what you've already learned and don't compromise. Don't compromise. Paul concludes in, in 2 Timothy 4, 7 through 8. And we can look at this as advice for our end, whether our end is during the day of the Lord or the tribulation, or whether it's long before that, when we go to our rest and are dead and buried. 2 Timothy 4, 7 through 8. I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not only to me, but unto them also that have his appearing. That's our future. The key to it is our faith in relying on Jesus Christ and having trust, faith, confidence in him, and energizing our minds with those characteristics. And we will all one day be in the kingdom of God.